Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Patient Zero. On this episode, we have none other than retired Vietnam veteran, First Sergeant James Bryan. James, how are you doing tonight? Doing very good, thank you. It's so amazing uh, to be able to sit down and talk with you. I, I literally have chills right now. So, just so you know, brother, Anthony, so retired Vietnam veteran. I, I have his combat decorations that I wrote down. He has a, and James, please correct me if I'm wrong on this. He has a silver star, three bronze stars, one with valor, two Vietnam Cross of Gallantry, six ARCOMs, one with valor, which is the Army Commendation Medal. He has one Air Medal, three Army Achievement Medals, one MSM Medal, which is the uh, Meritorious Service Medal, three Purple Hearts, and one Granada Campaign. And he also wrote the book, Walking with Heroes. Does that sound pretty correct, James? Yes. James, we're uh, certainly glad to have you here. Let's just uh, let's just open it up and kind of kind of just give us a brief history of of your life. I mean, maybe maybe what the book's about. We certainly want to plug that. So just I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, just just give us some detail. Okay. Well, well, you know, back in the day, uh, when you turned eighteen, you got drafted. Uh, of course, uh, when when I went in for my physical, I weighed 117 pounds, and I had flat feet. And the doctor says, "Well, son, you're you're underweight. You got flat feet." I said, "Well, hold it. Now I come here to join." <laughs> you know, and yes, uh, he says, "Well, you you're supposed to be a minimum of 120 pounds." I said, well, first of all, I'm an Indian. Indians have flat feet. So the two doctors look at each other, and they scratch through, put 120 pounds, and they scratch through the flat feet and stamp me 1A. Of course, I could have been 4F if I would wanted it. So I knew that uh, if I went to join... I could pick what I wanted, and I'd had relatives who had been with the paratroopers. My uncle had been with the paratroopers. So I joined the paratroopers at 18 and went on through my training uh, to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, in preparation to go to Vietnam. Uh, Also, in my training... I was trained to be a forward observer for artillery, carrying a radio, and artillery crewman. And I was picked to go through a special ranger course called Recondo. And that was for guys who were forward observers. And it's an eight-week course, and it teaches you demo, sniping, medical and uh, escaping evasion, stuff like that. And then uh, I got orders for Vietnam. So when I got in Vietnam, I was a little bit better trained than the average. Give us, uh, James, give us kind of the time frame there. When 
what, how far along was the war when you actually, you know, got through training and, and you're going to you're gonna come aboard and, and, you know, head overseas? Well, it was uh, 1967 uh, at the height of the Vietnam War. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and, of course, I was sent to my unit, 1st Brigade, 101st Airborne. Now, one thing they teach you in the paratroopers, a lot of people don't understand, is you're trained to be surrounded. You want to be surrounded by the enemy so you can kill them. Right. And you're told that right from the start in the paratroopers. It was the same thing in uh, Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge. The 101st was surrounded uh, by the Germans, and it was it, it, it's tradition. So when when I got to Vietnam, I you know had regular training in country, and they sent me on to my unit. And in my unit, uh, it was a small unit, and we got put into some pretty pretty unique positions in the middle of enemy territory. So, I mean, we would be uh, guarding a bridge or we'd be uh, guarding a river crossing that the enemy were using. We'd be on top of a hill in the middle of enemy territory. So, right from the start, I started seeing combat within a week of, of me getting getting in vietnam of dropping in so so paratroopers so tell me tell me about that that first time in country jumping out of that plane not knowing what what's coming when you get down well we, we i only made one jump in vietnam it wasn't a combat jump gotcha uh but it's helicopters okay you know and uh, when you go in by a helicopter, you can you can actually hear the bullets hitting the aircraft on the bottom as you're coming into your position. And they sling load your equipment on a Chinook. And I made a habit, uh, me and another private, we carried what they call the Beehive. And the Beehive is an emergency shell. And uh, me and Joe Turner, we would sit on top of the ammo boxes uh, to protect us from the bullets hitting the bottom of the helicopter. Gotcha. So but uh, we'd go into positions, and a lot of them were pretty hot going in and uh, received a lot of fire. We'd get attacks and have to defend the position, you know, uh, Combat become routine after a while. Yeah, and it, it sounds like it did. And again, I don't want to give too much of the book away to anyone. And certainly, Tony, I don't want to give anything away to you. you I wish I would have brought it back over tonight so you could actually read that and get a chance to read it. But the stories that are in this book bring you in and absorb like it brings everything. Like, I swear when I was reading them, I thought I was actually in combat. That's how well 
it was written to sit and, and listen to these short stories of what happened. So um, just a little bit, give us kind of, um, not wanting to jump too far around, but give us a little bit of insight on what made you write uh, the book Walking with Heroes. What, what kind of, what was going through your mind when you wanted to actually put that down on paper? Well, I started putting it together years ago. I'm not an author. I'm just a guy with the story. And, you know, hell, uh, one of my professors told me in college, he said, damn, Brian, you spelled shit with two T's. You know, that's how <laughs> your English is. So I had to do a lot of personal editing to clean up what I wrote. Uh, now, believe it or not, this is a true story. I only went to the fifth grade. No, yeah, I'm a, and, and that's in the book. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it is or not. I, I did read it in there, and another part that I read was, uh, and I, I'm not—I don't want to give it away, but gosh, I, I want that's everybody okay. to read it's this. Okay. Yeah. So one portion of it, he was talking. I, I think you were talking to a first lieutenant or uh, a general, yeah. someone. And you kind of started laughing at him. I, I don't want to give too much away, but you were laughing at him. They said, well, wh- why are you laughing? You're like, well, I only got a fifth grade education. And I guess it was well, going yeah, from the yeah. NCO to a CO. So for everybody out yeah, there, the non-commissioned yeah, officers to a what commission. What started that, too, is my second tour in Vietnam. Uh, you know, of course, I was 21 at the time. And a captain come out to our position to interview me to uh, uh, to give me a field commission as a lieutenant. And I, I said, boy, I know that shit ain't going to fly. I'm, uh, I have no education, you know. But uh, when they checked my records and found out I had no education, they had to drop it. But I was actually put in for a field commission my second tour as a sergeant. So, so, sir, so you did, how many tours in Vietnam did you do, two? Three. Three, so three separate tours. I know there was one where you had went to Germany. So that first one, let's kind of reel back a little bit and go through that first one. Kind of give, give us a little uh, oversight on how that first tour, being a young 18, 19 year old kid, um, fresh out of high school, not being able to, you know, live the as i would call now that american dream of you know as you say in that book chasing those girls in college and and doing that what what kind of went through your head and how'd that first tour go well the the first tour uh, you know you get pretty tight with the groups in your section but we lost a lot of pe- a lot of people uh and we'd continue, continually get replacements. Uh, when I was 19, I hadn't quite turned 20. Uh, you know, it was pretty severe combat. And I just turned 20 when a week before my sergeant was killed. And uh, I had to take charge uh, as as a young kid, and uh, you know that's a pretty tough decision 
that's put upon you to be in charge of people when you're that young and a private. You know, I was still a private in the Army, but yet, uh, but my additional training helped out too. And, and uh, that was one of the first major battles was, uh, in fact, that's what the Medal of Honor was about, was about that action on October 15th, 1967. Yeah, so there was a video, so you you know, brother. There was a a YouTube video. There was a, I believe it was the mayor or the governor of Florida, where he's at, um, that wrote to President Obama and a bunch of them and said, hey, like, this guy needs to have a Medal of Honor, like, for what he did. So, in that story, and I don't want him to give up too much of the juicy details, but him just saying it gives me chills because when you actually read that portion of the book, when he becomes a sergeant and the things that, <laughs> it's amazing what he says and it makes me laugh every time because, I mean, and it's not something to laugh about, but you could tell he had that comedic side of, yeah, you realize what you just walked your ass into and what I did. You're going, I'm sure, I mean, hell, you're going through a situation that is is so dark and and shit's hitting the fan, you know, all over the place. I mean, uh, mean, I'm, I'm only 40 years old, but throughout my life, you know, I've just realized that, that every bad situation you've got to, you've got to take the light out of everything that you can take and just remain as positive as you can. I, I think that, uh, I mean, listening to you, you, you only had a fifth grade education. I mean, why don't, why don't you walk us back, you know, pre, pre-army life? I mean, what, what led you to, I mean, you only got a fifth grade. Were you a farm boy? What, what did you do? Well, uh, my grandmother raised me. Uh, she was, her and her sister were the local bootleggers. They sold moonshine. Hell yeah. And, and us kids, uh, we, we worked to try to help support the family. Now, my brother, he went on to school, but we couldn't afford both of us to go. And... So I went to work, and he went ahead and went off to school. But I worked uh, farming, logging, uh, driving all kind of equipment, whatever was needed. Uh, And I run a little moonshine helping my grandmother out, too. (laughs) Where'd you you grow up, James? A little town called Paxton, Florida. Paxton, Florida. Is that up up near, up in the panhandle? In the panhandle? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, population, uh, 300. You know, it's very small. Right. And uh, close to there, my mother owned a bar. She uh, bought it for 200 bucks. It was called the Bloody Bucket. Is there is there a reason for that? There is, and it's in the book. Uh, <laughs> it's oh, in the it book, was too. a pretty rowdy bar, you know. <laughs> right. But she worked off there, and my grandmother raised us. In fact, uh, when my brother was born, the uh, midwife charged my grandmother 10 chickens for him to be delivered. 
Ten chickens. Ten chickens for a birth. How does that how does that constitute to today's money, would you say, James? Uh hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so back in the day you could be born for a hundred dollars. Hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. Yeah. It, but back then, I mean a hundred dollars is what? Equivalent to the three or four or five, maybe ten grand that you spend to have a kid now? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure it is. I'm yeah. Sure it's it crazy. Well, you know, back back then all those counties were dry. They couldn't get whiskey. So moonshine was king. And uh of course my grandmother and aunt sold it out of the big house. Uh the big house was an old bungalow with the porch on the front. And when I was six years old, I I used to swing in that swing, watching the drunks come in, buying whiskey. So, and, uh, there's a little bit more to it than that. That's going in my second chapter. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, but uh, uh, we kept the moonshine down in the hog pen and two demijohn jugs, which are five-gallon jugs. Right. Glass. Oh, yeah. And uh, my grandmother would send me down there, and she'd say, Jimmy, go down to the hog pen and bring me two gallons of spring water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'd take a, a small-mouth gallon jug and the crook of each finger, and I'd go to the hog pen and pull the tire back and pump out two gallons and I'd squirt some to the hogs because they liked it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And then uh and I got a little taste for it myself. I bet, I bet. So what kind of what kind of mash did you make back then? What kind of what? Mash. What what were you corn Oh rice? it was corn corn mash. Corn mash, corn. gotcha. Oh yeah. That's yeah, so it was the old fashioned, probably 120 proof moonshine. Oh, the good, the good stuff. <laughs> that shit was a good paint remover, too. <laughs> I think they made aircraft remover, the paint remover after <laughs> that stuff, didn't they? Yeah. But uh, it was good, safe uh, uh, whiskey, and my grandmother and aunt had a reputation, you know. For it, yeah. Where where was where'd you hide the steel at? Well, the local farmer, uh, he done the steel. We just sold it. Gotcha. I understand. Okay. He'd keep our jugs filled uh, once a week, and and uh, my granny and aunt would sell a pint and a half pint, and uh, that's the way I was raised. You know. So and, was it uh, was it. Uh, how many counties around you were dry? I mean, how how far did you travel to to deliver All of whiskey? Them. All of them, yeah. All of the Florida Panhandle was dry. Wasn't dry in his part of the town. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it it was legally not legally it was dry, but illegally he kept that him and his aunt and his grandma and all them mom and them they kept that place hopping. Yeah. That's so amazing yeah, to hear. Funny thing, funny thing about it, the old mayor, he would come in, the local judges, they'd be buying all the police departments, fire department, they were all lined up there buying moonshine 
and I'd sit on that swing and watch them all. <laughs> Boy, you wouldn't you wouldn't see that kind of thing going on nowadays. I oh mean, that's, no, no, that's that's a back in the day for sure story. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit more to it too. Uh, my aunt had a housekeeper named Josephine, and uh, this guy, two guys, come up to the door. And one of them said, uh, "Hey, John, you can get a tickle for twenty dollars." Yeah. Well, I'm I'm six years old. I don't know what a tickle is. Yeah, yeah. But by the time I was nine, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when uh, when was that first tickle, James? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't tell that. I'm a gentleman. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but. That's so, that's great. But actually, all that's true. That, uh, that's the way I was brought up. If they ever made a movie about it, it'd probably be so damn dirty they uh, wouldn't publish it. it it'd be rated X. <laughs> yeah, Especially not now times. X. Yeah, they wouldn't, be able to, they wouldn't be able to release that. That'd be an underground, <laughs> an be underground, underground release. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, well, yeah. yeah. So five years old coming out of school um and i do remember reading in the book you know you, you couldn't really see and read and stuff because of the glasses you know you needed glasses you guys couldn't afford glasses so you you, you pull you get pulled out of school drop out of school to start helping the family um so you started doing a lot of what like farming and and some just whatever you could to, to make ends meet yeah. to help the family right yeah, uh, uh, I drove equipment. I drove uh, tractors, combines. I drove a log truck uh, when I was 13 and 14. Uh, you know, back then, nobody checked for license. Uh, uh, we didn't even have tags on them old log trucks. Half the time, the brakes wouldn't work. But uh, anyhow, that's another story. <laughs> Riding in hot. Coming in hot. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the rail yard, I had a little mound of dirt. I'd aim for that. That would stop you. <laughs> Come back a week later. Hey, can you guys put that mound of dirt up a little higher? I think I'm going to yeah, run through yeah. that thing next week. <laughs> but uh, the, the saving grace, uh, all honesty, I'm, uh, I'm a numbers guy. I have a head for math uh, uh a lot more than average. So my scores in the military were off the chart uh, for math. And that, uh, well, in all honesty, that put me in some pretty good places later in my career. Uh, uh, they put me halfway through my career. For 10 years, I was nuclear weapons. And, I went to school for nuke for a year. Tell us, tell so, us, tell us a little bit about that, uh, James. I mean, I'm sure that there's some some classified information there. So you you were actually got to see a test, maybe. Well, I I done a test. I set four world records parachuting an artillery piece that fires a nuke. And uh, but here's how that got started. I was in Vietnam after a major battle, 
And the Army historian called me in uh, uh, the morning after the major battle that was going on. And I was just a private, you know, nobody. Joe Shit the Ragman. Right. <laughs> and uh, I reported to the general. Of course, he's sitting down. And he's the Army historian. His name was S.L.A. Marshall. He wrote several books, Night Drop and some others. A well-noted Army historian. And he said, son, I don't think you realize it, but uh, last night you saved over 200 lives. And he said, I noticed in your records before you'd saved lives before in other combat he said what are you some kind of captain america and so the men were outside the tent they heard him say it so i got the nickname of captain america at 20 years old believe it or not that's amazing that is amazing yeah uh, that's true and so throughout my career, they would pick me for missions that other people wouldn't take or couldn't do. And they picked me at the end of my career to do, I'd been picked for other things, but the mission I was given was to parachute a cannon that fires a nuke behind enemy lines, the gun, the truck, and me and my 12 men jump behind it. We put it in action and we pop a nuke. And it they gave me a year to do that. I took an entire year to put that together. Uh, it's in the book. The decoration, one of my decorations is there for it. First time ever done. It's never been done since. Uh, And I set four world records. uh, Two in the Air Force. uh, Two in the Army. So I'm pretty proud of that. Look, just the accommodation, just the decorations alone. It's not, I wouldn't even say that. I would say deeper, just seeing from what happened when the Vietnam vets, those heroes that came home and the heroes that didn't come home and the servicemen and women that, you know, went and never came home. That right there is something to be proud of. The decorations and in and, and the book as well, reading it, you know, there was no second guessing. There was no second questioning when you read the book and you read some articles like newspaper articles that he posts in there and, and uh, magazine articles and other articles that's talking that, you know, he's running from one gunning position to another while there's, you know, uh, recoilless rifle fire, um, satchel charges, machine gun fire. And he's just running with a 20 year old kid. Imagine yourself at 20 years old, doing what he did. No way in hell. I mean, it sounds to me, James, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a a very high capacity for resolving situations fast. 
in in the instance that they need to be? Well, uh, I was given credit. Uh, you know, I was in uh, Italy, and you know they sent some of us to uh, uh, the British commando training in England. I got my British wings. Right. And while I was there, I noticed uh, some of their weapons. And so I says, hey, uh, can I uh, get a briefing? They said, well, we're not supposed to. They're classified, but yeah. And come to find out, some of their artillery was much better than ours. So I started taking notes. Right. And then the Falkland campaign happened. And it showed where the British weapons were outranging the Argentine weapons, which were American-made. And I wrote a report. My little old report, which I've got a copy on my phone, uh, wound up at the Pentagon. And, what, what, uh, year, what year was this, James? Uh, it would be 80, I think, 81 Gotcha. The colonel calls me in and he says, uh, Brian, I read your report. Says, uh, I'm sending you to England to pick up two British light guns, which are 105s. We're going to test them here at Fort Bragg. So he put me in charge of the testing. Uh, of course, it was British munitions. And we had to figure out, you know, if there's a treaty. We can't use other nations' uh, ammunition. Right. So, based on my test of six months, and it went on to the Pentagon, and my colonel, a guy by the name of Colonel Holliday, uh, the American Army bought $200 million worth of that gun. And today, that very gun is the basic of the 105 in the entire army. Gotcha. gotcha. That was my project. And those are the things that I, were, I was doing. I was doing testing. And I'd always improve a piece of equipment or find a better way uh, throughout my whole career. And that's how one day I got picked for the the nuke program uh yes a lot of his classified i can't talk about but uh that parachute jump we did was there at fort bragg the gun went out the back of the 141 jet uh, stretch model the truck which pulls it is a five-ton truck me and my 12 men jumped behind it we put it in action, and we popped the nuke sim on a target 30 miles away, and we did it in 22 minutes from the time it left the airplane. Shoo! The time it breached the back of the airplane, 22 minutes later, they're pushing around downrange 30 miles, a sim round downrange 30 miles at a target in the yep. 80s. In the 80s. This, this was in the 80s, James? Yeah. So this is this is uh, the final cold. test uh, for us to do it was 84, 85, 
And I think I put pictures in the book. I believe there was. Okay, so that that must have been with the 105, the 105 That's millimeter That's a 155. Oh, 155. That was okay. 155. It, it, uh, it fires a nuke. Okay, so this is this is going on right, right during toward, the Cold War. During the Cold War, I mean, close close to the end, uh, give or take. So after after you you know get through this, I mean, and you're you're going through nuke school. I mean, how much longer did you stay in? Well, I retired in uh, 1985, the end of 85. Gotcha. What what rank were you at that time? Uh, well, I, I reverted from first sergeant to master sergeant for the test. Uh, they put me in uh, what they call core artillery, first of the 39th there for the test and uh, me and my crew were the only ones on jump status uh, in that unit and it was top secret for a whole year until we did it once we did it they had all kind of cameras and everything it become declassified and that way i could share the pictures and the decoration gotcha 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 so you know not that people say oh man you're bullshitting I said, dude, uh, you don't get a decoration like that on bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so now we now we get to 1985. I mean, you're you're coming out of the uh, military. I mean, where where do you go from there? Well, what happened was uh, when when I come back from Vietnam uh, after my third tour. I'm at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and the colonel comes to me and he said, uh, Brian, I want to promote you to staff sergeant, but you got to get a GED. So I got the GED book and read it a couple, three weeks and took it and clapped out a year of college. And uh, <coughs> through my career, I was accepted in University of Maryland and Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. So I finished up there when I retired. So you, so I mean, you just said that. You had a total of a fifth grade education before you went into the military. And as you conducted your career with the military, I mean, you're coming towards the end, you said you got to get a GED, and you, you just start automatically clepping out of college courses what you're telling me yeah that's my that's 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 not so so after that you know you you come out and uh i mean where do you where do you go from there james after, after well that? uh you got to remember now those three purple hearts caught up with me gotcha uh, at the end of my career I started getting sick and my lungs were giving me trouble. I had a lot of holes in my body. I had a traumatic brain injury and they med boarded me out at 20 years. And uh, when you get med boarded, you don't have a choice. Right, you gotta, you gotta in go. In fact, yeah. 
same thing happened to Audie Murphy. He got medboarded out from one of his injuries. He couldn't stay in. And I couldn't stay in, which I wanted to. But uh, And the funny thing about it, I made a parachute jump a week before I was put out on a medical. Really? Yeah. Well, don't sound like he's in too bad a shape. No, well, he's... the lungs are the key. Right. You know, I was on inhalers and stuff like that. In fact, I'm using an inhaler tonight. Uh, but he did say to oh, them, he was like, if I'm getting out of here, you're medboarding me, I'm going to make one more jump out of this fucking plane before you kick right. my ass out. <laughs> well, I was uh, I was already uh, manifested to jump. and So I went ahead and jumped, you know. But uh, I was on jump status the entire 20 years. In fact, I was a black hat instructor uh, for Jump Master, a master parachutist in Italy. Uh, one of my students was a second lieutenant, David Petraeus. No kidding. I know yeah, that name. We had him. Yeah, we had Petraeus fresh out of West Point in Italy. I was in Italy four years. That was a good assignment. It's crazy how small this world is. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, especially especially a guy that's that's been around, been through the ringer. I mean, a, an exceptional human being, a, a, you know, a high high capacity for IQ sounds like to me. I mean, and and uh, hey, my name's James Bryan. I I trained or I I trained Petraeus. How to jump out of a plane? How to jump out? Of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, and, and by the way, sir, I, I, hey, I tell believe, everybody too. Believe it like, or not, uh, because of my combat record, they would roll me out to brief uh, people uh, there in Italy. Uh, I briefed Alexander Haig. In fact, I told him, I said, come on, General, let's go get a haircut. Your hair's a little bit too long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I briefed all kinds of different people in my career uh, because, uh, well, I just had a record, you know, and they knew that I could handle whatever I was given and he didn't deal with the bullshit. And he even says it in the book. And there's a lot of times you'll read inside that book where he's told the private, just stand down, da-da-da, whatever. And he's like, I don't have time for your bullshit. I'm going to go do this. And he'd go do this shit. He didn't care because he knew he had that keen sense after being in deployed so long and in war sure. and such a young kid. He knew what he, he knew it was about to hit the fan. Hell, half the people, when, you, when you're reading it, and, and listening to the book and, and going through it, half the people weren't even combat veterans. Had not, they, they were fresh out. And, you know, you got a private over here that's telling lieutenants and them, hey, I need you to pop some white phosphors up here. I, I need to see where the fuck around me. He's like, I'll just go to bed. And he's like, I ain't got time for your bullshit. Right. <laughs> we're going over here to do this. <laughs> well, uh, what was good about my career, though, I did some pioneering work that's used today in the military. I'm pretty proud of that. Tell, tell yeah. us about it. Tell us about it. Well, uh, a, a different type of munitions we were testing, some, you know, different stuff. But what I'm proud of more than anything 
is those lives that were saved. That's what I'm proud of. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. you take take away all the other. That's that's what I'm I'm proud of more than anything. And I got to serve with the best airborne units in the world. I served 101st Airborne, 173rd Airborne, uh, the Band of Brothers, 509th Airborne in Italy. Uh, and I've done some stuff in Fort Bragg that was classified. They were put together the Delta Force. And I, I had a good career, a real good career. Sounds like it's so it, it it's amazing to hear, you know, yeah. start to finish in, in pieces of it, and again, you know, that's that's something. Get the book, look at that book, and 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 just read that thing. And it's, you know, reading those stories just it blows me away. So, well, I I tried to when I was writing it, I put myself back into the action. So I could describe it through the eyes of a 19, 20, 21 year old young man. And that's what I tried to do. I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm not an author. But uh, there's one little piece that I'd like to add that, that uh, is not in the book. Uh, boy soldiers. You probably have never heard of that. Boy soldiers, are, are you talking? Boy about... soldiers, yep. Explain it to us, James. Well, when when I was nineteen, in front of my position on a no name hill, uh, three boy soldiers with a green beret sergeant was protecting my position. Now the boy soldiers were what they call yards mountain yard, mountain people. And they get recruited at 13. So these are, these are, are, are they the Vietnamese naturals? Naturals? Yeah. Just yeah they're people. aboriginal. Okay. They're not regular Vietnamese. They're mountain people. And the Green Beret would recruit them because they're extremely loyal and fierce. But I made friends with one of the boys named Two. And we exchanged food and stuff like that. You know, young young kids getting to know each other. Sure. And he'd come up to my gun all the time. And I made sure he had good food. And, you know, uh, uh, that went on for about two weeks. And then the... 15th of October, 1967, we had that frontal attack. It was over 200 North Vietnamese charging up the hill, trying to take my gun. And there were only four of us. Of course, everybody else was asleep. I was the only one up at the time. Well... The boy soldier, 14 years old, had already 11 kills under his belt of the enemy. 
after the action at daylight, his body was in front of my gun where he was protecting my position. No kidding. Jesus. No kidding. That's, that's... I got a picture of him on my phone. And I'm going to put it in the second chapter. That's crazy to hear that, you know, at 14 years old, man. Imagine 14 that, years like, old. We have yeah. daughters and sons, did children you? right now that are older than that. Did did he make it did he make it through the battle, James? No. 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 Uh, no. All three of them got killed uh, protecting my position. Uh, the enemy was trying to take my position. Uh, their mission was to take my 105, uh, turn it on the other 105s, and to try to capture as many paratroopers as they could for political reasons. Sure. That was the intel report we got later. But uh, they hit my position, and uh, that's when my sergeant got killed. And then when I fired the two beehives, you read about the beehives. Yep. Yeah, those are nuts. That's a bad some bitch, I tell you. <laughs> Just reading about it, I, I'm telling you what, I'm, man, you, you get engulfed into it when you read it. But go ahead, tell tell us a little bit about the beehive and, and kind of what happened after that. Well, uh, I was covered from head to toe with black powder. My gun pit had over 40 dud Chinese grenades in it where they were trying to knock my position out. Uh, they knocked my gun out with a satchel. Shot in the left leg. Uh, uh, my captain shot the guy when he was reloading the second clip. And uh, after my gun was knocked out, I grabbed the machine gun, and eventually it got knocked out. And all I had to uh, defend the position was my dead sergeant's M16. And a siren sounded, and when the siren sounds, that's the retreat of the enemy. In fact, some people asked me later, why didn't you shoot the retreating enemy? Well, believe it or not, they were trying to pull their wounded out when the sirens sounded. Right. And I just wasn't going to fire on with them doing that. Right. So, the end of the battle, uh, I, you couldn't recognize me. I had so much powder burns on me, black powder. And I was bloody all over. But uh, I helped with the wounded because I do have medical training. I applied some tourniquets. And then the medevacs come in and started taking us out. The gun position next to me 
was Webster Anderson, 30 feet away. He lost both feet and a hand, and he got the Medal of Honor. Yep. But uh, thank goodness I could cover him with my machine gun to keep his position from getting overrun. That's an amazing, that's, amazing that's story. That's the battle. Yeah, that's the battle that was uh, written up for my Medal of Honor nomination. Gotcha, gotcha. So, I, I mean, I imagine through, I mean, throughout your life, throughout your career, I mean, all these, all these amazing, amazing stories. I mean, especially through, through Vietnam. I mean, one, when you, when you get home, you get out of the military. I mean, you're. You're coming back to the States to try to live a normal life. I mean, could you just you just switch it off and, and go to work? Or, I mean, how did you overcome that? Well, uh, I stayed in 20. Right. But at the end of my career, I finished college out in Arizona. And I built a company, a small trucking company. I had that for 12 years until my wife passed away. She had pancreatic cancer. Yes, sir. I sold it, moved back here. Biggest mistake I ever made. And uh, remarried, which I shouldn't have. And had a bad divorce four years ago. Gotcha. But I got a new girl. And she's yep. gorgeous. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. So, and he, uh, it is. It, it's beautiful to hear, to hear that James and and to be able to understand. You know, I, I, I we were just at me and my wife were uh, just in Panama City Beach, and we go to Panama. And I, I don't think I told you this, James. We go to Panama City Beach every year. It's more like our anniversary. But um, my wife's mom passed away with pancreatic cancer a few years back, and and. Um, just hearing, you know, with his wife and stuff now, and this girl that he's got, and he's, it's so amazing, and the things that he's doing now, and I, I don't want to keep from that, I, I, I want everybody to hear more of what's, what's going on now from that time when you got out, and I know that, you know, PTSD was a real bad thing, you guys were not, um, well, it wasn't even a thing, it, it, it wasn't a thing, but, you know, they weren't even graced with you know, nice and happy and loving open arms when you guys got back so you're back and and trying to get through this after four years you know you know four years ago you had a bad divorce and stuff how did you um get through because i know a lot of you know not a lot but i've met a few vietnam veterans and and they all seem to be the same not like nowadays um, people that are, you know, coming back from Afghanistan, Iraq, and that are just really, really, really bad off. Kind of give us a little perception of, of how you coped with a lot of that and how you are now and kind of where, where you're going from there. Well, in all honesty, when I was in Romania last month, the people there treat American veterans like gold I got treated better in Romania as a veteran than I have here 
people here go about their daily lives. They're not concerned about the veterans. They say they are, but it's all a bunch of talk. That's why I, I did my program with the homeless. And I've done a couple of other programs, too. I've done a PTSD program with my horses for six years. You know, for PTSD veterans. But, you know, talk's cheap. And that's why I wrote the book. You know, people need to realize what our young men go through and have to come home to. Yeah, it sucks. You know, I was, I'm prior military. I was 92 Fox Patrol and Supply. You know, I, I never deployed um, to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, however, you know, we have 18, 19 year old kids that can go to war, but they can't drink a beer. And I remember that oh, was I, one no. big thing that you said, what are you going to do when you get out of there? And all you wanted was an ice cold beer and you couldn't have one because you weren't <laughs> old enough till you got to Germany, right? <laughs> I remember that. Hey, I come back after my first tour to Hawaii at the airport. And I just said the lounge, I wanted a cold beer and I couldn't get one. I tell you what, if I was in there, I promise you I would give you every cold beer you wanted. No kidding. Oh. That's made, all I wanted was a cold beer. I would have even drove you to that hotel or wherever you were headed after that. Because, man, I'm telling you what, all the veterans out there, it doesn't matter what war you've been in. Even if you're not even in a war and you served in the United States military, God bless you for your service and everything you guys Well, it's, uh, it's amazing. When you watch my YouTube video, I made a mention. I said, hey, when... That you, when you put that uniform on, male or female, you're writing a blank check. And uh, the balloon could go up any time. So right. all veterans, all service members uh, face the possibility of that happening. Right. So I wanted to make sure I noted that in my uh, video. And if, if people want to uh, look at the video, it's veteran voices on youtube james bryant yeah we'll put uh, it we'll, yeah we'll put all that down in the show notes um, oh okay for everybody to to be able to look at and be able to click on um i have a lot of those saved from from just our talk on that drive down in panama city so um james right now also does um he is an uber driver uh the most amazing uber driver my wife <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even lying to you. So the day before, I think it was the day before we left, James. I maybe like two days before we left. She called. She she told me she was. Hey, you need to call James. You need to call that guy that gave us the ride from. So we can't. We went to the hotel before we got to the condo because right. the condo wasn't ready. And he gave us a ride. And she was literally sitting in there and she was wanting to cry in the condo because she was like, his story so amazing, just to hear it and the passion that was in his voice when he was driving us. Um, so that's why we, I ended up calling, I, I messed and I said, Hey, I'd love for you to take me to the, to the airport. And he was more than happy. So if anybody's down in Panama city beach, Florida, uh, Jane, reach out to Mr. James, James Bryan, Bryan, Bryan on, Bryan, Uber, on, and, on Uber and man, he's an amazing, amazing Uber driver. So, um, I appreciate that. 
No, I appreciate you. I really appreciate your service and everything that you've done. And, and this is this is so amazing to hear that, you know, I, I just, again, that's why I came to uh, my brother and I was like, hey, man, we I really want to get this guy on the podcast and, and just chat with him. And, you know, people need to hear the stories of, again, like you said, of what our kids are going through. You know, these young adults um, that are going through, uh, being in the military and war and you know I have a lot of buddies that that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and and it's it's insane to see you know the change in their life when they came back especially being prior military right like my life changed when I went through the military it sure. changed 180 degrees but watching them come back from um, war and talking to them it, it was a total change like their life changed 180 again so it's so amazing to be able to hear you know hear your you know your story and and where you're going again you do amazing stuff you know talking to him he's he goes and picks up um reunites kids with their families so like when he said he went to romania and i i don't want to take that thunder away from you so if you want to tell everybody a little bit of why you're in romania i don't think we actually got there that is a really, really cool story to hear. Well, it, uh, you know, I went to Romania for almost a month on vacation. My beautiful girl, she's there. Uh, we're, we're married in the gypsy tradition and have been for almost three years. But uh, my goal is to get her back here, which I hope shouldn't be a problem but uh i brought back two little girls a three-year-old and a five-year-old they were born in the states in tennessee so they were american but they were stuck in romania the parents are in political asylum in chicago so they couldn't travel so i escorted the two little girls back to their family They've been separated for a year uh, because of COVID and because of borders being closed and them not having the ability to travel. So that was the last one I did. Uh, the first one was two years ago, and it was three kids as well. They were U.S. citizens, but their mother and father had been deported, and uh, they were in Romania. And um, my girl, she escorted them to Romania after I got custody and got all the docs and got passports and everything and got custody. It took five months to get custody on that one. So some of those programs, they cost. And I pay out of my pocket. Uh, Now the proceeds of the book, uh, when I sell a book, I put it on my Venmo, that way I can control what money I have for my volunteer work. And I do my homeless program and I do that program. And the proceeds of any book sold, that's where it goes. And uh, of course, I don't have a house, I don't have a home. I wanna buy a home here that divorce I had blew a big hole in my credit, so 
maybe, just maybe, somebody will buy the rights to the book and make a movie script out of it. Sure, sure. A screen, I mean, screenplay. I would, I would encourage anybody listening to, I mean, let's let's get out there let's let's buy a copy of james book i mean i'm me personally i'll i'll buy a copy i mean no problem just just to support support the cause for myself because i mean that's that's amazing james that you i mean you just carried that exemplary military career on and then just just kept kept helping people i mean that's I mean that's that's what I'm about try to be about my personal life and my professional career outside of of, of podcasting and is is just I like very much just to help folks and I I don't really need anything out of that other than knowing that I help somebody. Yeah, that's the whole point. You know, if, as long as I can uh, feed my girl and take care of her and and take care of what I do, I'm happy, you know. That's sweet. And and again, oh. <clears throat> James, what I want to do for you, so I did kind of tell you a little bit, I was a senior network engineer and IT guy. What I want to do for you is I'm going to go ahead and build a uh, website. Um, kind of, it's, it's going to be a little, it, it's not going to be the most amazing thing, but what I want to do is I'm going to put your book on there for sale. So, and I'm going to, in the show notes, is going to end up, it probably won't be on these show notes. It's going to take me a while to get this um, website done. But what I'm going to do is, in, in a later podcast, I'm going to let everybody know how they can find it. But in the show notes, we're going to go ahead and post um, James's Venmo down there. And uh, if you go and buy a book, James, I can help you get those to um, these listeners that are out there. And get that book over to them whenever they make that purchase for you. And I want to get you a website put together. I think that'll be something you know, I'd love to help people. And that'll be a way that they can actually go and buy that book. And I do encourage everyone that's out there. Um, again, yeah, he said he is an author. But, man, I'm telling you, you read these short stories. that he, they're, they're more of, to me, when you look at it, some short stories of some battles and stuff like that. But, but then you can see the actual portion of chapter one of the book lower off in the bottom and it's just amazing that he's throwing all of his all of his memories and and things that to us that we take for granted right i mean right. there's a lot that we take for granted that he's just dropping out there and, and letting everybody everybody see so i want to go ahead and do that for you james i will definitely keep in contact with you and let you know when that's done and and i'll keep a copy of that book uh on the website so they have to purchase it to be able we'll get to the, get, the, get the website pulled up with i mean james if you're good with it i mean we'll just reach back out to you and have you back on again well i'm i'm computer stupid I mean, I, I've got an iPhone, and that's all I use. <laughs> well, but, uh, yeah, if, if you're good with it, I'd love to, uh, once we get that website going for you and get that book on there, I would love more than anything to have you back on the podcast, and we could definitely put that down in the show notes and, and let everybody have that opportunity. I do, you know, it's it's amazing what you do. It, it really is. It truly is amazing. Now, there are two more chapters that I'm going to write. You guys have the first, the most uh, impact chapter. I've got two more chapters that I'm putting together for later. If I live long enough. Well, it sounds like you got a, you got about another 30 years. Well, James, 
again, I said I'd keep you for about an hour. I don't want to keep you. I know you got stuff to do and you're relaxing and resting. And uh, again, it was so amazing to talk to you, um, to hear your story. Um, we'll definitely get that website together for you. Um, get your book on there and have you back on the podcast again so you can, you know, um, if you want to go deeper in something or if you just want to sit and BS with us, man, that's, you know, kind of what this podcast is about. But I really do appreciate your time. Okay. Well, I, I thank you. You guys are doing a good job, too. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely, James. I mean, in in closing, I mean, do you have any have any wise words for, you know, a couple couple young entrepreneurs here just trying to, to fire up get the podcast going get it out there get uh and helping people man give us give us some uh, inspiration james well inspiration is we're democracy now i spent 20 years of my life running around the world spreading democracy we are a democracy uh, and I'm very proud of that. You know, being a patriot is a little bit more than flapping a flag. Yes, sir. Or a yes, tattoo. Sir. There's a lot more to being a patriot than uh, uh, what I what I see nowadays. You know, you can serve your country in other ways. We got homeless out there. Uh, find volunteer work if you are getting bored do whatever you can to help our nation because we are a democracy that's the main thing well said james well said well i mean like like tom said we sure appreciate you taking the time to to sit down and talk to us and i mean i would love we could go for hours i'm sure but i would love we get the website up we're going to bring you back on, and I, I bet you got a couple more stories you could tell us. Oh, I got some good ones. <laughs> you're, to, you're to hear the one about a rock fight with a gorilla. <laughs> I, think, I think we hold it for the next one. Yeah, I, I, lead, I want to leave these guys in suspense for that one. James, again, thank you so much. I appreciate okay. your service, sir. You are such a true stand-up gentleman it's amazing to have the opportunity to talk to you thank you again okay you guys take care yep see you next time man all right bye-bye bye